Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Lloyd. Amy Wright. Good to meet you, Amy. Lloyd Green. We are, it's just such a pleasure to have you in our studio, someone with such a long musical career and in, in such a great history um, with um, Americana, music, rock, just everything. You've played with everybody. Um, Seems that way, doesn't yeah. <laughs> it? Don't, sometimes I'm amazed when I look back at the uh, repertoire, too, because I considered myself primarily a country musician and uh, when I started recording in my mid-twenties in the uh, studios of Nashville, it, uh, that's what I really was. And, and later the Country Music Hall of Fame has for three years had an exhibit called the Dylan Cash Nashville Cast Exhibit. And it features mo- almost pre- uh, predominantly rock music we cut with everybody except country artists. And, and I think, my gracious, did we do all that? We did it by default because we didn't have separate rock and, uh, or folk groups at that time, the musicians who did the sessions for country did everything. Right, because uh, even Bob Dylan recorded at that around that time, right? He did indeed, around 1965 or 6 in Nashville, 66 I think, the first one, uh, Blonde on Blonde, Nashville uh, B- uh, Skyline, and I think one more album. And you recorded with uh, uh, Johnny Cash, The Birds, uh, you, you tell me. I. You probably have a laundry list of people that you, that whose album you were on. Well, I, I recorded with thousands of people, so I, I, it's hard to to uh, differentiate. Of uh, if you ask me specifically who who my <laughs> favorite artists to record with, I'd, I'd probably give you obscure names like uh, Mel Street uh, or or Johnny Paycheck, who's not so obscure, but the Little Darling days of Johnny Paycheck and. Uh, and, and maybe my favorite singer, producer, musician would be Ricky Skaggs or Paul McCartney because uh, they're both brilliant and, and both equally talented in all areas. Ricky probably a better singer, I mean, you know, I mean, from my taste, but uh, so it, it's just a whole smorgasbord of people I recorded with. I, I was a, well, I, you know, Musicians, recording musicians, are mercenaries. We right. we worked with who we were uh, hired to work for, and and it, it was irrelevant who uh, I was called for. I I, I look forward to each day going to the studio. It was a new experience and adventure, and and uh, they really became our we became each other's family. The musicians spent far more time with each other than they than we did our families uh, for decades, and and you grow up with uh, a lot of minuses, and you you lose that part of your life but but you figure you got to contribute to the body of uh, knowledge about the music too because we were inventing the cut the Nashville sound in Nashville in the 60s and 70s and 
and it was great to be part of that process. And so, obviously, my first favorite singers would have been, I mean, that I enjoyed recording with was Charlie Pride, who was the first black country singer. And Nashville didn't know how to accept this in the 60s. You can imagine the climate, the, the uh, social climate at that time. But uh, he was able to disarm people with a sense of humor about it, and he was such a good singer. And he won everybody over, sold 70 million records for RCA, second only to Elvis, which is pretty amazing. It is amazing when you think about all these artists and um, such iconic names now, and, and then they were just trying to make it as a musician. You know, I saw this movie, The Wrecking Ball. Did you see that movie? Mm -hmm. um, what you're describing sort of reminds me of The Wrecking Ball. and Precisely. Yeah. It was the same phenomenon in Nashville as was going on in uh, Los Angeles and Motown. And, and so we were all doing essentially the same thing, but in different locales. We were all just contributing to the language and, and uh, making the music. You know, I always looked at it as, and I'll say this part of this in my acceptance speech tonight for an award I'm getting, but uh, I always felt like when we went, went into a session, we were brought songs and they, they could be beautifully lyrically written by brilliant writers and, and great melodies, but they, they still were essentially lifeless until we added the music and the music gave them a heartbeat and gave them a personality and, and perhaps inflections of humor or sadness or frivolity, whatever the, the uh, situation uh, called for, uh, the mood of the music. And that became what music was. You, you don't hear many records without music on them, just a singer and a rhythm guitar, but there is some, but, right. but very minimally. Now, you're a pedal still, and um, I we were just talking about this, and I find the pedal still to be one of the harder instruments to play. So tell me a little bit about how you actually got into playing pedal steel. Did you did your parents have a pedal steel player or No, pedal steels I'm old enough that they didn't exist when I started playing. I was I started playing when I was 7 years old. And uh, I was playing professionally by the time I was 10 and and modern pedals didn't come into being uh, at least in the modern sense until Webb Pierce cut a record in 1953 called Slowly. And there was a guy named Bud Isaacs who played this very primitive rudimentary one little pedal that accentuated a change from E to A on the steel guitar. And it was something I'd been playing. I was 15 years old when I heard this record. And it changed the way I thought forever about music because I realized something different was going on. So at that point, I had my own pedal made. Within two hours, I understood what the what was happening. And I had one, and I found out players all around America later when I came to Nashville and started meeting players of my age that they had done the same thing. Whatever town they were living in, when they heard Slowly by Webb Pierce, they had a primitive little homemade pedal put on their guitar so they could get that same change, which gave us a new sound. And that's when I began playing steel, pedal steel and modern steel, essentially. I could play everything on records before that. That was cut country. I, I could memorize everything easily, so it was no uh, problem. But, but pedals, uh, I fortunately grew up and helped invent what modern pedals became and the, uh, the, the language of the instrument. And so it, it never has been a problem to me, and I can see the complexity of it, and it is uh, uh, mechanically difficult, and it's also mathematically challenging. It, it does require, uh, to play it uh, fluently, uh, it requires a lot of char characters of personality. It requires talent. It requires uh, a lot of practice and patience, and, 
and thought, and it requires a good intellect. And I don't know any good players who aren't smart guys, so it's... Uh, we had Robert Randolph in the studio. Robert Randolph, I met when he, before he even became a professional player. He was a paralegal in, in uh, New Jersey, and, and I heard him play, he, and he didn't know... He asked me if I played steel, and I, I had been invited to the music store in Nashville by Bobby Seymour, who owned this music store. you got to come hear this kid. He was 19 years old, I believe. And so uh, he said, well, sit down and play for me. I, if you play, he didn't know who I was, which was fine. And, uh, and uh, Bobby said, you got to be kidding. You don't know who this is? He said, no, because he didn't listen to country music, Robert. And right. He's so probably told, thinking, who is this guy, right? Yeah, so he said, well, I, I told him, I said, if you're going to be in town tomorrow, I'll bring my steel out. I'm not recording, so we'll sit down and play if, you'll, if you're going to be here. And he said, I will be. I walked in the next day around 2 o'clock. He was sitting there with his steel waiting for me. I set my steel up and facing him, and, and I said, what do you want to play? And he said, I'd like to do some gospel songs. So we, he named a song, and I, I said, well, go ahead. And he said, no, you play first. And I played the song, I don't remember, uh, In the Garden or something, uh, traditional gospel song. And I looked over, waiting for him to play, and he was crying. And, and he said, I, I'm not going to play after that. I can't play that. And, and it was a really touching moment. But, but I finally got him to play, and I, I mean, again, by himself. And, and I realized he had tremendous talent, and he, he had a remarkable career ahead. And, and he's made a, a great success out of it. I, I like him personally. I like him musically. And... Uh, He's a bright guy. <laughs> yeah, it was a joy to, to have him in the in the studio. And um, so uh, back in the 1968, I think it was, uh, you uh, played on the iconic album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, uh, the Birds album. Right. And um, it was partly due to your music and your sound that gave that album a distinctive, a distinctive sound. Well... Let me give you a little uh, chronological history. They came to town and they they uh, asked. They didn't know who they were going to hire on steel guitar. They didn't. Uh, only Graham Parsons knew a little bit about Nashville. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> so they asked around and who, who's the top steel players? Well, they were given two names: Pete Drake and Lloyd Green. And so they knew that Pete Drake had already cut with. Uh, Bob Dylan, and they knew that he had recorded with uh, George uh, Harrison and some of the stuff, whatever, in London with the Beatles. So, so they they said, well, he's got too much name value. Let's go with this other guy, Lloyd. So I was called to do the CBS sessions. The original plan was to do the entire album in Nashville. We had eight days booked, starting on a Saturday, ending on the following Friday, and. Uh, I think they thought they could do the album in that length of time. It was we only had several Nashville musicians. I was a prime primary Nashville musician. We had also uh, John Hartford playing some uh, banjo on a couple of songs, maybe fiddle on one song, and Junior Husky playing bass on one or two songs. And so it was pretty sketchy outside of me. So it should have been easy to do. And but they liked to. I was used to going in a recording studio and. In those days, we did four songs every three hours. We had 45 minutes of song, and there was no... You had to knock them out. And that was the way we cut records, and we did three and four sessions a day for decade, for 12, 15 years I worked this way, sometimes seven days a week. And that was what I was used to, the protocol. And, and But they wanted to sit around and, and do funny things for two or three hours, and 
And uh, then the, somebody would get inspired and say, let's cut this song. And, and I've been waiting for several hours to cut it. And you Ain't Going Nowhere was the first song, the Bob Dylan song. And so I asked them, I said, well, where do you guys want me to feel? And, and in unison, they said, everywhere, everywhere. I said, my kind of guys, turn it on. So I played subsequently through the whole song virtually. And we hit it off real good. I liked them, they liked me. And, uh, and but I was, they had to sandwich me in because I was booked four and five, six months in advance in those days. And they had to take what time I had. So Friday came and we only had five or six songs cut. Well, I think they cut one or two more that I didn't play on because I was already booked somewhere else, and they never added steel two that are on the album, or certainly on the uh, outtakes album. Right. And <clears throat> um, uh, on, uh, they uh, asked me if I could come to California and finish the album. They felt like they had half the album, five songs they could use. And I said, well, <clears throat> I can't uh, for several months and they said, well, we can't, we got to do this, you know, CBS wanting it yesterday instead of tomorrow. You want to get it out? And so I said, well, I won't be able to go to California. So they hired my friend J.D. Manis in California to finish the album. And that's where they resumed recording in, in the uh, Columbia Studios in Hollywood. And they got to the last song. <coughs> you had to. Excuse me for a moment. Yeah. Want to get a little water? <coughs> I figured this going to happen. It's, uh, it just comes. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, it gets a dry spot in your throat. Where that's that's your... what it feels like. Yeah. <coughs> I've never had anything lingered like this. I have. <laughs> it sucks. <coughs> Most embarrassing, particular moments like this. Where should we start from? Um, let's just take it from um, uh, in in Hollywood. You know the the, the last okay. song. So uh, they were uh, they had gone to the last song and they were cutting in Columbia Studios in Hollywood. And for some reason, they decided they needed me on the last song, a song called "A Hundred Years from Now." And, and they what's the song me, about? The Remember? song, what's it about? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and who knows? <laughs> you know, lyrics, I was, a, I was an instrumentalist. And I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I should be embarrassed, but I'm not. <clears throat> I listen. Well, not, if you, not if you record on literally hundreds of uh, songs, I'm sure, you know, you're focused on your part. <clears throat> well, I was, uh, I would listen for key words and phrases and, and I never listened to lyrics. I, I'm the worst lyricist in the world, so uh, I don't know. It, it, it was a good song, and and I, I, I was able to, in two weeks, fly out on a weekend. I said, I can fly out on a Saturday. i got to be back in the studio on Monday here. So they sent me a ticket, and, I, and they had a limousine pick me up. At the, I mean, made a big deal, you know. Pick, picked me up at the airport, took me to Hollywood, to the CBS studios where they were waiting. And I got to work with Clarence White, the great guitar player, who was not with them in Nashville. And that was my, I knew who, I mean, I was a fan of Clarence's. And, and it was a grand moment for he, he and I to get to work together. And he took me out to a club somewhere in the Hollywood Hills that night. We played until daylight on Sunday morning. And, and then we went back to the studio and worked until two or three o'clock on that song again. Well, actually we recorded an instrumental. <coughs> And 
And then I flew back to Nashville, and I was back in Nashville studios the next morning as if nothing, you know, it's all gone. And that finished the album, as far as I knew. And and uh, I didn't think any more about it. And it it was not a commercially successful album, as you may know. Everybody who's a astute Birds fan knows it. It didn't sell a lot of records, but it became a, a transitional album, a, a kind of a pivotal album between country and the transition of country and country rock. Well, and this and is the 50th off, anniversary, right, of the release of the album? This is the 50th anniversary this year. We, we did it in uh, March of 1968. We started it. So in a few days, it'll be literally the 50th anniversary. I think it was the 6th of March when I started recording. It would have been 68. When you're involved in a, in a <coughs> tribute to, to that album, the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, there's a... Um, you've put out another album as, a, as part of a tribute to that? or Well... J.D. Mattis, the original player, had approached me for years about doing a project together, and I kept vetoing them. I didn't, uh, I'm out of the game of doing instrumental albums. Nobody is interested in instrumentals anymore, largely. And so, <coughs> but he kept pitching ideas, and one day he called me. He said, how about if we did an instrumental version of the Sweetheart of the Rodeo? And, I, and that stopped me in my tracks, because we were both the two players on that album, and the fact that we're still alive and and reasonably cognitively uh, intact and able to play at the levels that we always played uh, professionally, I said, that's, that's, that's it, let's do it. And John Macy at that point got involved and became our producer and, and it's been a, a, a grand ride since then and so many things are happening on the advent of this thing coming out now and uh, being commercially released. and. And uh, it's the darkest of dark horses, I realize, being a I mean, an instrumental album. And then furthermore, it's a steel guitar instrumental, which, which characterizes it further down the, the musical chain right now in the world of music. And, and, but <clears throat> stranger things have happened in the world, and I could foresee all kind of uh, weird things happening with this album. Uh, after all, nobody anticipated that around 1960 of Santo and Johnny, two guys that didn't really play steel guitar, having a multi-million seller on Sleepwalk. And I think there's a real rebirth in um, looking at this kind of music, and a lot of a lot of people, young people and old people, who are really interested in a little bit more of the traditional side of what we call country back in the 60s and 70s versus what's called country now, and, you know, hence Ameripolitan, why, one of the reasons we're here. I, I agree, and I've been to, uh, you know, they, they performed the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album. People do uh, groups all over the world as tributes to that album. And, and a guy named Bill Lloyd in Nashville had a stellar group of musicians and singers. He recently did it with Emily Lou Harris, and he, he asked me if I would do it. It was on the eve of us starting this album, and I, I said no. So they got another steel player who did a magnificent job, Pete Finney. And... I stood there and watched the entire thing, and, and most of the people are, weren't, weren't even born when we cut the original album. They looked like they were in their 20s and 30s, and they were mesmerized by this. But the music was fantastic, way better than the, the Sweetheart of the Rodeo original album, I mean, the singing and the, and the overall music. That I, I mean, I, I say that musically, as pro professional, right, yeah. yeah, I mean it musically. But <clears throat> it was... Uh, emotionally moving for me uh, to, to see that kind of reaction and I'm standing there uh, thinking wow these people weren't even around when we did this uh, and here they are they love this music and, and they're drawn it's to a it. new thing for me so we're looking at this album at least JD and I originally initially were of, of being like a bookend to the original 
and just being a concomitant to to the Bird's album, and it, but it's, it's starting to seemingly take on a develop a life of its own. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I'm prepared for anything, and it may uh, regenerate my desire to stick around a little longer and play. I'd, uh, I, Isn't that the magic of music? You don't know where it's going. You put something out there, you create, you put it out there in the universe, and you see, you see who listens. Precisely, and it's it's always a, a wonderful guessing game, and uh, wonderful things can happen. Or, or total silence. And I've seen it both ways in my life with so many artists and, and so many artists from the very start. Uh, they're, uh, they come into the studio for the first time and everything's wow, the wow factor and, and they can't be more impressed and, and, and suddenly they become big artists and as their career grows they, they get more confident and they develop these barriers, you know, of, of uh, safety uh, defenses because everybody wants a piece of the action. You know? And it's interesting to see the metamorphosis of personality psychologically. I always was interested in all that stuff beyond the music too. But but this album is uh, it's really good musically. Well, uh, I, unfortunately, I wish we had vocals on more songs than just "You Ain't Going Nowhere." We've got Richard Fury and uh, uh, Jim Lauderdale and uh, and two or three others uh, uh, sing Jeff Hanna. On, you ain't going nowhere, as you probably know, and mm -hmm. and is uh, I, I hope that the instrumental stuff can carry it beyond that. But but that's very significant, the singer part, and we we'll, we only have them on one song, so uh, it carries a lot of uh, <clears throat> uh, portent uh, 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 fear with it to me uh, for for that very reason. If we had just singers on a verse occasionally of something that would but but having said that, the music, we, we're much better musicians, I think, at least I am, and I think J.D. is too. Uh, well, I don't know better musicians, but and my ideas are probably no better than they were, but they're more mature than they were in 1968. But musically, it's well done and, and put together, and, and John Macy mixed it beautifully, and, and there's a lot of love and time went into the mixing process beyond us recording it. So I, I'm all on board with what whatever uh, he wants to do with it because he's he's got a lot of emotional investment, but beyond the financial investment in this album, it's his uh, his baby. Well, maybe you can get back to Memphis at some point and play the album in our studio. We would love to have you. That'd so. be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'd love yeah. to. We're going to play it in Nashville in April. Uh, we'll perform some of it at Grammys, the big record store event on April 22nd and on the 23rd we'll be performing the entire album at the Station Inn in Nashville. So when you look back there was probably that fork in the road where you said I'm going to be a professional musician or I'm not going to be a professional musician. Oh yeah well <clears throat> when was that for you? That's an interesting thing. I was in college. I I was on a scholarship at Southern Mississippi and Hattiesburg and, and I, I had spent the weekend at college one night and I in the dormitory I lived in I probably might have been the only person there. It was very lonely that weekend and I turn on the Grand Ole Opry on WSM. Those days you could hear Clear Channel 650 all over America just about outside of the, when you, unless you got past them into the mountain ranges out west. And I'm listening to the Opry and, I, and I'd, rec I'd already played with a lot of people on the Opry on shows and things and Elvis had already, I'd already met Elvis and worked with him. I, I mean I didn't work with him but the summer before I left for college uh, he played Mobile with us. He and uh, Scotty and, and Bill 
uh, in the radio, at the Radio Ranch, the three of them, for two nights. We'd, we'd play 45 minutes of the band I was in, nine-piece Western Swing Band with Curtis Gordon, great band. And then Elvis and Scotty and Bill would come up for 15 minutes, and the place seated 750, and there were probably a 1,000 girls in there screaming. And, and it was going wild, you know. And, and he looked like a Greek god, of course. And, <laughs> and, uh, so uh, I'd work, I knew a lot of people up in Nashville. And, and, but, so I'm listening to the Opry, and I'm feeling really lonely. And I thought, you know, I can play as good. I can play better than most of those guys. I'm going to Nashville. And it was a, a whim, and I gave up my scholarship. I was going to have to sign. I was in ROCC, and I was going to go into the— uh, I had to sign a contract with the military in two weeks for my junior year had I stayed. And that, that would effectively put me in the Army and I'd become an officer and, and maybe Different get path. killed in Korea somewhere, I mean, you know, or Vietnam, wherever. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I didn't want to tie myself down. I wanted, I, I wanted to get this music thing out of my system. I, I've been playing professionally since I was 10. I was already 17, so, or uh, 19, 18, almost 19 by then. And on a whim, I came to Nashville December 26, 1956, I was 19 years old. And I got a job with Farron Young the day I got there. I, weird set of circumstances. Uh, he heard me play and anyway, he needed a steel player. And uh, I got married shortly after that, six months after that, my wife and I met and, and we were married until her death about a, a year and a half ago. And um, we had a great life. I never, I wanted to go back to school, but I never got back. and. I gave up the scholarship, so I'd have had to pay for my uh, enrollment. But, <clears throat> but music, uh, I, I recorded a, a song with George Jones about three months after I got here. The first record I played on in Nashville, and it, it was went to number seven in the country charts called uh, uh, "Too Much Water Running Under the Bridge." So I was. In, You're hooked. Well, I'm hooked on. That's where I said this is where I need to be. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in the studio. And sure enough, I got my next session seven years later. <laughs> I mean, a hard seven years. It was a, it was a very trying time, and we had a it was we lived in poverty like all musicians did, and a set of events propelled without my control, and uh, and suddenly I'm recording in studio and working as an executive at CSAC in their first office in Nashville in 1964, and I never slowed down for the next. 15 or 20 years, I guess. And I recorded for 25 years, and then I retired. And my wife and I traveled around the world for 15 years, and people kept calling, want me to come back. And I finally, about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I started recording again. So I've had a real career and and a kind of a mini career now. And all this, if I hadn't come back to playing, I would have never known this. What we're doing right now, just Amy and me sitting here doing this interview and talking about the sweetheart of the rodeo. Right. And, and Do musicians ever really retire? I think it would be hard to, to uh, it's I almost like so. asking you to quit doing something that you, that you love to do. It's not, it's not your typical vocation because it's, uh, most people are drawn to playing music because they love it so much. That's precisely it. As a musician, how can you quit? <clears throat> That's part of, it's, it's ingrained in who you are. I mean, it's part of my personality. I, um, I have a lot of other interests, but but music is always, I mean, it's, it's part of my soul. I, I don't know if I can quit, but I, I'd sure like to try because 
my dear love Sandra and I, I mean, she's got homes in different places in the world and she wants, we want to travel and I'm finding it a difficult decision to make whether I want to continue doing this after, but it's according to what happens with the Sweetheart album. And uh, uh, this could change my whole perspective. Plus there's a big vote coming up at the Country Music Hall of Fame, which will be released in two weeks of who's going to be in the Country Music Hall of Fame this year. And one musician will be, uh, once every three years they elect a musician. There's only four in there currently, and and uh, it's going to be a recording musician. And So, so you want to wait and see well, what happens there? I, I mean, I'm not keeping my fingers crossed, but I know I'm on a short list. And When you're getting the Founders Award here today, tonight, and what, yes. is, what is the Founders Award? Well, it's called Founder of the Sound Award, and... Uh, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I understand what, what the term means. And, and in, a, in a sense, I was a, one of the founders of the, of the sound, at least during the 60s of what became the Nashville Sound. But, but I was only one of a small cadre of musicians who were creating those sounds. And, and I want to make that clear tonight that, you know, that I'm accepting it, not for me, but for us, because in reality, one person didn't create the Nashville Sound. And uh, I hope everybody else went in the studio with the same fervor I did each day because I loved it, man. I couldn't wait to get to the studio. It was, it was like a uh, the next great adventure. I, people find that hard to believe, but if you're cutting records, you know when something's really good, you know it's, nobody's going to hear it for, in those days three months before the records would come out. And, and it was wonderful knowing when you'd done something really special and everybody else was going to be saying, wow, in three months. But you had this little secret for a while. And, and I've had that experience so many times, and <clears throat> I don't know, there was something special about it. And plus, it was a heck of a good way to make a lot of, make a good living. Best way is, I mean, no musician can make the kind of money a recording musician could make. Uh, it just wasn't possible, unless maybe you're part of a group who shares the profits, a big group, you know. So if you could give some advice to someone starting a career in music, what kind of advice would you give them now that you've had a whole career to think about it, to well, live through it? Well, if you if you got to do it, do it. But I I wouldn't advise. I would advise it as a as a secondary career or a a, a, a sideline because uh, it's a, it's fraught with uh, uh, so many pitfalls. And today the uh, the industry has changed so dramatically. You know, with uh, online and downloading and the digital world. It's uh, <clears throat> it's hard to have a career as a professional musician and make a decent income. So, if a person's smart and has talents in other areas, they should get their education and and pursue music as a passion on the side. I think I mean that would be my advice. Uh, but I mean I would never tell anybody what to <laughs> do. I, nobody was going to tell me what, I was going to do what I wanted to do. But there was a chance. See, there were bands all over the United States playing country music when I was young. I could have gone to any city in, in the United States and got a job. You can't find a band anywhere now because of the drug, I mean, the uh, alcohol laws, the stringent, and, uh, dr uh, you know, driving things. And plus, uh, country music has many definitions now instead of one. So it, it's, it's it, if I know what I know now. They, they tour to make money now. Almost more than record sales, it's more about touring. And yeah. Uh, yeah, the, there is no, for instance, there is no recording career anymore. I mean, the recording industry has imploded in, in Nashville and elsewhere. Nashville was a trendsetter. Uh, 
people don't go in to cut albums largely anymore. Somebody like Taylor Swift will, who's selling millions of records, but largely they go in to cut uh, one song, two songs, maybe a five song uh, uh, half album or wh whatever it's called. There's a name. LP uh, well, or EP? Something, yeah. EP. EP, EP yes. I'm, I'd forgotten the EP. terminology. And <clears throat> it's just, it's lost its uh, uh, consistency and 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 dependability. Uh, you, uh, but but the guys who do it, my best friend, a guy named Russ Paul, who played on this album with us, and he's probably the top recording musician in the world now. He's he's out with Dan Orbach of the Black Keys until the 25th, making big bucks. He was last week in New York City with uh, John Oates of Hall and Oates. And, we had John Oates in the Diddy Studio. So. Really? And he told me, uh, he called me from New York, he said, he said, guess what, I'm, I'm playing rock and roll, real rock and roll steel guitar with John Oates in New York. I said, go for it. I wouldn't know how to do that. I mean, not like he can. So, And he, he, a guy like him can make lots of money because he, he also, he's in demand as a session player when he's in town with, with the biggest artists in the country music field of any music, he can play anything. And he plays about 10 instruments, so he's got an advantage over me. I just play steel guitar and dobro. And, uh, plus, he doesn't have the, the age factor weighing heavily as, as I do. <coughs> but I, I certainly uh, would never suggest anybody should do anything, but just given my experience and, and what I can see now of, of, of the dangers of trying to have a musical career as a, as a career, you might be consigning yourself to a lifetime of poverty. I, <laughs> but maybe poverty and along with some, some uh, uh, happiness in there somewhere. I, I agreed, and, and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons to do it. I, right. I, I, that's what I say, you know. I, nobody has an insight into truth. I mean, no. it's all opinion, isn't it? My brother, who was a physicist, said, the only, in his cynical view, he said, there is no truth except in mathematics. You know, everybody else, everything else I think is he might be conjecture. Right. Exactly. So everybody's got an opinion, and uh, some are educated, some are not. And I, but I'm just giving you from my side of experience. Uh, but you're right. Uh, I think if you love something, I mean, you shouldn't. Uh, we only get one life, one shot at it. Right. And, and do what you want to, you know. And, but if you're going to be good, you're going to have to spend a lot of time practicing. And the steel guitar is the hardest of all to learn. It's, it is very complex, and, and you're not going to learn this thing in two years, three years. I mean, it's a, I find things still, and I've been playing all my life, that I, that I say, wow, you know, I, why didn't I think of that 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Not that it matters anymore, because steel guitar is kind of way down the musical totem chain right now. But it matters to me. and. Uh, uh, so it's a, a evolutional and constant learning process, a never-ending quest for knowledge. And uh, there are a lot of other instruments that are a lot easier to play. Guitar, everybody buy a guitar, and, and cost factors is another thing. Costs a lot more money to become a steel player, buying amplifiers, volume controls, uh, steel guitars, which are prohibitively expensive. You can buy, go in a store and buy a guitar for $150 and be a guitar player. You got six strings. And, and there's some great guitar players. They're all over Nashville and, and the world. And there aren't many great steel players all over the world anymore. No, uh, not at most all. Most of them have died. <laughs> uh, all my friends are, are gone, uh, just about, that I recorded with. 
We had a good friend, Lewis Meyer, who was a, a still player. He used to live next door to us, and uh, we, he introduced us to the instrument. And like I was telling you earlier, I, I said I think it was the hardest thing I've ever even attempted to try to play, <laughs> and I did not learn it. But um, we wish you uh, the best of luck with Sweetheart over the Rodeo. And just want to really thank you for stopping by and um, telling us a little bit about yourself. And, and hopefully it won't be long till we uh, get to see you again. I hope so, Amy. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it immensely. I hope I didn't go too long on the ego oh, stuff no, about not at all. It was fascinating. It was enjoyable. And I, we'll, we'll both keep our fingers crossed for the Sweetheart of the Rodeo instrumental. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.